If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a primarily community-supported show, and this episode is also sponsored by Made Trade, one of the very few consciously curated online stores that I recommend to my loved ones for everything from home goods to clothing, accessories, and holiday gifts. In addition to their curation of thousands of ethically made and earth-minded products, they just published some really helpful gift guides on their website, and I'm especially appreciating the one titled Eco-Friendly Gifts Under under 150, which features these triangular reclaimed wood serving boards, jewelry made out of recycled metals, this handwoven colorful scarf made using heritage techniques by artisans in Kulu, India, and more. As I mentioned earlier or before, Made Trade offsets emissions from all of their shipping, and they also support localized regenerative textile systems with every purchase. So if you plan to buy handcrafted and responsibly made gifts, for yourself or loved ones this season, I highly recommend checking out Made Trade and you can get 10% off your first order at madetrade.com slash green dreamer. That's M-A-D-E-T-R-A-D-E dot com slash green dreamer. And well, today is marked as Thanksgiving, but also designated as National Day of Mourning because of the dark history associated with this celebration. This is from Wikipedia. The National Day of Mourning is an annual protest organized since 1970 by Native Americans of New England on the fourth Thursday of November, the same day as Thanksgiving in the United States. It coincides with an unrelated similar protest and counter-celebration called Un-Thanksgiving Day held on the West Coast. The organizers consider the national holiday of Thanksgiving Day as a reminder of the genocide and continued suffering of the Native American peoples. Participants in the National Day of Mourning honor Native ancestors and the struggles of Native peoples to survive today. They want to educate Americans about history. History, end quote. 
or really the real uncensored version of history that allow this to be a truth-giving instead, as many people say. So what should we acknowledge? I'm going to share some insights from a collaborative piece on Thanksgiving between NDN Collective, an Indigenous-led organization, and So You Want to Talk About from Instagram. So it's a common myth that the first Thanksgiving was 1621. The reality is that no one can really pinpoint when the first one really occurred, but they do say, Indigenous nations all over the world have celebrations of the harvest that come from very old traditions. For Native peoples, Thanksgiving comes not once a year, but every day for all the gifts of life. What's also a myth is that the pilgrims and natives became great friends. 20 years after the supposed first Thanksgiving, English soldiers massacred about 700 Pequot men, women, and children at Mystic Fort, burning many of them alive in their homes and killing those who fled. Puritans from Massachusetts colonized Connecticut and killed nearly every inhabitant of Pequot Village at Mystic. Most of the surviving Pequot people were sold into slavery. With these heavy acknowledgments, recognitions, and remembrance, NDN Collective shares some calls to action for us, including listening to the podcast, All My Relations, episode titled Thanksgiving or Thanksgiving, supporting the Land Back movement, and learning about it at landback.org. And we're also going to talk more about this um, on the podcast as well. Protecting Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit People from the Missing and Murdered Epidemic, which you can learn more about on Instagram at MMI who is missing the account and also heading to native-land.ca the website to learn who the original peoples are of the land where you live learn about their modern day issues and fights and engage in supporting these efforts so again all of this came from NDN collective you can follow and find this post on Instagram at NDN collective that is their handle um, and yeah, with all this mind, of course, if you are so lucky to have today or the long weekend off to spend with loved ones and family and friends, hopefully gathering safely in a way that recognizes we are still in a pandemic, I really, I send my love and I hope you cherish your time with your friends and family. And if you feel comfortable doing so, bringing up these discussions around the myths and truths of this national holiday. For today's replay, as we continue to work behind the scenes to prepare for a really enriching following season and new season of Green Dreamer launching in a few weeks, we are bringing back this episode today with Native Chef Sean Sherman, who started the nonprofit Native American Traditional Food Systems and Indigenous Food Lab, and has been working tirelessly with his team to help cook and provide meals for their community's elders and people facing food insecurity. I hope you enjoy the discussion and I also encourage you, if you feel moved by this episode, to join me in donating money, if you're able to, to Sean's nonprofit as a part of your giving back for today or for the week and for the upcoming Giving Tuesday. And also, if you're looking for holiday gifts, Sean does have a book on Indigenous cuisine of the Dakota and Minnesota territories, which might be a great option for any of your foodie friends. Anyhow, I give my gratitude today and going to make it an everyday 
practice to the native peoples of Turtle Island and beyond, to the Kumuyai people of the lands I'm currently based, and to you, of course, for being open to continually learning with us on Green Dreamer and for your ongoing support. Thank you so much. Well, I started working in restaurants at a really young age. My mom had moved us off the reservation right before I started high school. So I grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation. I'm enrolled with the Ogallala Lakota Sioux there. I started working in restaurants in the Black Hills of South Dakota when I was just barely 13. And I worked restaurants all through high school and college. And in between that, I actually had a job with the Forest Service in the Northern Black Hills. And my job was a field surveyor, so I was pretty well on the totem pole. But my job made me go out basically and have to identify all the plants in the Northern Black Hills. And that uh, skill set obviously came in pretty handy much later in life. <laughs> After college in the Black Hills, I moved to Minneapolis and continued to work restaurants and worked my way up to an executive chef position fairly quickly. So within a few short years, I got my first executive chef position and just started working uh, like a typical chef. Um, but I was kind of—I feel like I was lucky because I jumped right into farm to table movement when it was just up and coming in Minneapolis. So in the early 2000s and being able to work with farmers and ranchers of the region and trying to figure out how do we get this awesome food into the city and into the restaurants and skipping a lot of the middlemen and things like that. So it was a lot of fun to uh, just problem solve and work directly with this different way of bringing food in. And then a few years into my career is kind of when I had the epiphany of doing the work that I'm doing now of really trying to understand indigenous foods because it was just the realization of the absence of indigenous foods anywhere in culinary across the way, um, you know, because obviously there's no native, there's just very few Native American restaurants anywhere out there throughout the U.S. And, I, you know, just was kind of eye opening that I didn't even know that much about indigenous foods coming from an indigenous community. And it just, you know, shot me on the path to try and understand. So I spent quite a few years just uh, self-educating. And, you know, I lived in Montana for a while because I wanted to be close to nature. And I wanted to, you know, I was living on a beautiful ranch where it was close to the mountains and also next to the plains. And I was able to spend a lot of time just reflecting and trying to figure out how, do I, how, how to make identifying plants a part of the culinary and understand the history of indigenous peoples and talking to elders from communities and really trying to bring a sense of it. So eventually moving back to Minnesota and then starting to actively pursue doing events around indigenous foods and doing pop-up dinners to getting to the point where I developed my business, The Sous Chef, um, and opened it in 2014 and have been able to do um, just this ever since then and grow a team and obviously accomplish a lot in a very short time period. Mm. A simple but immensely powerful question that you've noted and asked is that here in the United States, we can find restaurants of cuisines from literally all over the world. But why are there not Native American restaurants everywhere? And we can't really answer that without the context of what happened to North American foods as a result of colonization. So can you help us paint a picture of what happened in terms of our food and how we've come to marginalize Native American foods and its bioregional ingredients? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're at a time where obviously there should be Native American restaurants all over the place because no matter where we are in North America, we're standing on indigenous land and there's indigenous history. So that was a big part of the question, too. You know, for me, it was like, why aren't there Native American restaurants everywhere? And 
how come I didn't know that much about it? And you're exactly right that it came very much about how the U.S. government and, and their relationship with indigenous peoples, you know. So the if you look at the history of the United States and, you know, if you read books like Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Oritz, she goes into really amazing detail um, from an indigenous perspective of how destructive the U.S. government was against um, indigenous peoples of these regions and how they utilized the scorched earth tactic of really just wiping out tribe after tribe after tribe. And this immense, um, like century long uh, push of ethnic cleansing that happens throughout the 1800s, you know, it starts before that, but really it happens throughout the 1800s, especially as the United States is its own government and starts creating its own rules and laws and giving itself entitlement to continue to push westward um, until it, you know, takes over coast to coast, basically. So we look at the immense amount of land lost by indigenous peoples during that time period, from the early 1800s all the way to the 1900s, where at the beginning of the 1800s, like over 80% of the land mass was still controlled by indigenous peoples. And by 1900, all of that is gone. Um, the indigenous peoples are pushed onto reservations, and they're basically sitting as wards of the U.S. government with only 2% of that uh, land mass under their feet at that point in time. So we see an immense amount of destruction of just way of life and how people moved around. But I think the most damaging thing for Indigenous peoples was a loss of what their education was. So for us, uh, it was really important to identify what is Indigenous education. Um, and identifying that really helps us because it's, you realize it's just thousands of years of generational knowledge being handed down family member after family member, basically how to live sustainably, utilizing primarily plant knowledge of your region. So all of this valuable knowledge that people had passed down of being able to do that is wiped out at the turn of the century from going into the 1900s because of the assimilation efforts in the boarding school systems and the residential school systems. And um, just an immense loss, and especially the, the oppression that happens, too, with these communities being pushed into immense poverty and, you know, we're still um, we're still reeling from that. And there's so much generational trauma that happens from the 1800s forward for indigenous communities. that It's taken a long time because indigenous peoples didn't have the entitlement to have families with money to be able to start businesses, you know. So it's been a real struggle, even for myself, you know, coming from a family um, very much the same and having to struggle really hard to uh, make happen what we did. But the work we're doing now is really trying to open up the doors for more economic prosperity and cultural realize, uh, revitalization through these foods and through this knowledge that we're uncovering as we move forward. Mm. There's a notable quote by Henry Kissinger, which says that control the food, control the people. And that's that's essentially what the U.S. government tried to do in pursuit of domination over the land. And I, I guess this is this is just reflective of how in their in their pursuit of marginalizing Native Americans, they also failed to learn what exactly this land can provide sustainably and the varying types of food sources that is readily available there. And instead, they came in to wipe all of this out to put into place this production system based on their dominant ideology of what a diet should look like. Yeah, and it's really more about the commodification of the land is what really they were more interested in. So you see how the U.S. government in history is utilizing all of this stolen land from indigenous peoples to do that purpose, you know, commodify it so they can make money off of it, which builds up their, their, their savings, basically, and makes them more and more powerful as they grow. 
and you know opening up this land for further commodification you know by other settlers that are coming in so they're you know whether they're immigrant farmers or they're uh wiping out the forests, you know, so we see mass deforestation. We just see so much destruction of these uh, natural resources because people, you know, are coming in to make a lot of money as fast as they can. Mm. And we just see, you know, like we see what happens (laughs) between, you know, from the 1900s forward. So we see a lot of these communities that had large open pit mines and, you know, what happens to some of these forests uh, and the land that's, uh, that's just, you know, the soil that's been degraded from that, um, that time period. So just so much change environmentally happens during that time period, uh, also on top of that cultural change. Right. You say that people often have a misconception of what you ate growing up in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. What do people assume of your childhood and what you ate and what was the reality of that? Well, people know very little really when it comes down to um, indigenous cultures because, you know, of how we're kind of lump summed into um, some kind of uh, ideological mascot like a thanksgiving kind of persona or something like that so you know media are always asking like uh, especially around thanksgiving time particularly they'll be like you're from a native american res- uh, reservation like what kind of food did you eat and you know because they want to hear that story of like oh you know we'd go out and hunt an elk down in the morning and have a big feast at night and blah 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 but <laughs> you know we grew up primarily on the commodity food program right so when i was growing up my cupboards were filled with government's uh, surplus foods and the Commodity Food Program was started as a farm supplement program in the 1930s to help out after the Great Depression um, a lot of these immigrant farmers that had been pushed throughout the West Western lands and to also um, give the government a surplus of foods for military, for hospitals, for schools, and for all these Native American treaties that it signed. So still today, the Native American reservations are relying heavily on the Commodity Food Program. And it's unfortunately never been a nutritional program. So you can see what happens to vast communities when their primary nutritional source is coming from that program. So you see an immense rate of type 2 diabetes and heart disease and obesity. It's just wrecking people, basically. So a lot of the work that we're trying to do is showcase how we can go back to controlling our, our to being able to eventually control our food. So this foods, this indigenous food sovereignty movement that's happening across the U.S. right now is um, lighting up in tribes all over the place because we see the true value of it and the true value of going back to foods that are particularly about them. And that's really what our work is because we believe if you can control your food, then you can control your destiny. Mm. And on a similar note, today we have what's called the SAD diet, which is the standard American diet. And it's characterized by high intakes of red meat, processed meat, prepackaged foods, butter, fried foods, dairy products, eggs, refined grains, potatoes, corn, and high sugar drinks. Essentially, it sounds like colonialism not only marginalized our Native American foods, but it also homogenized this North American diet to the point where there's erasure of our understanding of seasonality and bioregionality, both of which I think are key to knowing what it means to eat sustainably within any given landscape. So what do you think has been the greater health and ecological impacts of homogenizing our food across an entire country that is, it could almost be a continent in of itself? Yeah. And, you know, I think that you definitely see like where the country is going on a nutritional level and the health epidemics that are arising, not only in poor communities, but many, many different demographics across um, the U.S. and Canada and even Mexico. But, you know, we really think it's going to be so important for people to understand how 
true regional and seasonal food systems work and how much more food is literally around us, like right outside our back door that we could be utilizing and how much better we could be doing utilizing our landscape instead of having these huge colonial lawns. We could just be putting food all over the place, you know, and teaching our kids more about plants when it comes down to it. I always uh, tease in my talks that, you know, our kids can name more Kardashians than they can tree species, right? Because, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a matter of like, what is our education about? Like, what is truly important, you know? And food is the most important thing for us as humans, because it's the one thing that we all have in common. It's the one thing that we need on a daily basis to survive. And we really need to be thinking about what we're putting in our bodies. And I think we're getting to an era where people are becoming much more aware you're seaing a lot of diet trends leading leaning towards healthier foods you're seeing the younger generations starting to push back on the the fast food generations and things like that so i think things are moving in a in a positive direction but there's still obviously an immense amount of work to do uh, when it comes to pushing against that mm. and it sounds like because we have commodified our food sources our understanding of food is very limited in terms of what is edible so we may recognize 15 to 20 vegetable varieties or very few species of animal for people that eat animal products. And I'm, I'm mm -hmm. wondering what you think our limited understanding of what we can eat, what, what has been the impact of this on our biodiversity? Because essentially, our landscapes can be a reflection of what we support with our dollars. So when we constantly demand the same crops over and over again, what has that done to our biodiversity and how much of our heirloom varieties of food that people don't really understand and ask for at markets, how much of this has gone extinct? Yeah, I and mean, it's hard to say what's gone extinct exactly because, you know, a part of the work that we do of identifying indigenous foods is looking at that biodiversity. So we look at, number one, wild plants in general and how many um, plants people were intaking, the huge amount of plant diversity in the diet that was going on in, in indigenous communities um, is, is amazing, really, because there's like hundreds of varieties in some of these diets that people are utilizing for health and for uh, medicine and for just edibility and all of that stuff and crafting on top of that. And then we also look at the history of agriculture for indigenous communities. And we look at, you know, how widespread agriculture was, you know, starting from the bottom of Mexico and shooting throughout the entirety of Mexico, throughout the entire Caribbean, throughout the entire eastern seaboard, up through the entire Mississippi and Missouri river valleys. So stretching almost from the Rockies out to the East Coast, you know, and into parts of Canada. And there's like so much uh, food, uh, seed diversity that was going on amongst those tribes um, everywhere. And you can kind of follow the history of some of the flower corns and some of the dent corns and things like that when you look at the different tribes that were growing them and the huge amount of diversity they had because there was, you know, multi, multi kinds of seeds out there. There was all sorts of, you know, corns in particular because you have like reds and blacks and purples and greens and yellows and orange and rainbow and, you know, it goes on and on. So there's like so much to learn about how people were eating back then and just looking, comparing it to where we are today. So you take like where I am in Southern Minnesota and, you know, you even go down into uh, Iowa and you see nothing but these vast monocultures everywhere you look. And we know what it's doing to the soil and to the water supplies and the amount of chemical that are being pumped into um, maintaining that kind of system and the harmful effects of those chemicals bleeding into other food supplies and animals and insects and everything else. And it's just a mass destruction on a larger scale that we are not even going to really realize it for another, you know, probably a couple of decades, but it's happening in real time right now. 
So we really, again, like push towards community and regional and seasonal food systems. You don't have to be an indigenous person, obviously, to um, reap the benefits of this kind of uh, diet and food system, but it takes a community to really get there. But yeah, when you go to a farmer's market, you're going to see the same stuff. And we talk about how most people eat less than 30 plant pieces, you know, when you go to the store and they're buying the exact same things. Um, and, just, you know, for an indigenous diet, we should have more of this plant diversity. And it's just about opening up your eyes and realizing the true value of all these plants in our ecoregions. Mm. So do you feel like we have to fundamentally challenge our dominant ideas of what food production looks like? Because it sounds like essentially we've been converting existing biodiverse lands that likely have a lot of uh, varieties of edible foods within them that is a lot healthier. And of course, that biodiversity is better for our health as well in the pursuit of just converting all of that into monocultures of food, but of maybe one to two varieties. Yeah, I think we need to push back heavily um, as we move forward in the future generations. I think that, you know, just landscaping with the purpose of food is going to be an important step, you know, because we have all of this lawn space everywhere in it, and it's just such a waste of time and energy and water. And even, you know, people spraying chemicals on that to make that lawn look like they want it is kind of insane to think about, right? Because, you know, if you want to grow like a diverse garden, all you have to do is pull up some of your, your lawn, some of your sod, and you'll probably have like, 12 species of plants that'll pop up and most of those are going to be edible, right? And all of them will have a purpose, whether medicinal or edible. So it's just important to think about, but we should be like, you know, we believe in a future where we're utilizing a lot of permaculture design and putting, again, landscaping with purpose and just putting food plants all over the place and allowing for that biodiversity to start to reshape itself. Mm -hmm. um, and we can start to, you know, tend the land to move back towards um, a more diverse and giving landscape, you know, where it can just be filled with plants that have so many purposes for us instead of one, one crop in particular, you know, and I hate to like pick on like wine industry, but you go to Napa or somewhere out in California and just see these huge fertile valleys with one complete monoculture, right? Mm. And it's not, not that I don't love wine. It's just that <laughs> it doesn't really do. We can't survive off of it, you know? Right. <laughs> and it's just such a waste of such amazing fertile space that we could be growing so much food for the human race if we really wanted to, you know, or just, you know, so into capitalism and just commodifying everything. And, you know, it's just it's it's gonna, it would be so hard to to bend people in that manner. Or if you fly over Palm Springs and you see like all of these beautiful grass golf areas, right? <laughs> you know, the, all the time and money it takes to keep that those places green in the middle of the desert, we could be utilizing those resources to be producing food. Mm. And you talked about farmers markets earlier. Even in our farmers markets, there are still limited numbers of varieties that we can find there because it's almost reflective of what people may be purchasing. And of course, increasingly, there is more variety there as well. But I'm wondering, with this increasing push for us to you know, buy local foods to eat more sustainably, how much of what is locally grown is actually native to where we are? And what would be the difference between supporting locally grown foods versus natively grown foods? 
Well, I think it is important to identify the indigenous plants of your bioregion of wherever you may be and to really help foster those more for the future. Because if you look at the landscape, you know, most of the plant species that you're going to find out there are going to be invasive or, you know, considered invasive. But then again, most of those plant species will still have a purpose. So they could be edible, they could be medicinal, and we could be utilizing them in some way. So we could be, you know, trying to put more of the indigenous plants back into their areas and help them grow out in a healthy manner again, understanding that it's not about monoculture. It's not about just putting one plant species down, but putting many plant species down that grow well together. And we're still going to have a lot of these species that are um, new to these regions in the past couple hundred years and are now a part of it. So instead of fighting against them, I think that we learn to adapt with them and learn how to utilize them for what they might be worth, you know? So there's just more plants out there now. And it's just like keeping back some of the ones that like to take over a lot of the other areas and, you know, try to find a use for them. So we could be eating them, we could be making medicines out of them, we could be making teas out of them, whatever it might be, but we should be doing something with them instead of spraying chemicals on them and, you know, putting glyphosates into all of our water systems. Mm. You've also noted that there seems to be a generalization of what Native American foods were, which led you to write your cookbook, because with the size and diversity of ecosystems that exist in North America, it could be like saying, what is Asian food or what is South American food? So how have you gone about identifying what pre-colonial foods were? And from what you've discovered so far, what do you think indigenous foods can tell us about the relationships between Native Americans and their environments? So we look at indigenous foods almost pretty much on a global scale. We look at the immense knowledge of indigenous, uh, just knowledge keepers out there everywhere around the world, because we've worked with people from uh, indigenous groups from Africa, from India, from Southeast Asia, from Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, South America, of course, and Central America. But, you know, we all share this history of so much destruction of indigenous uh landscape and foodways and culture in a very short time period of of human history. Um, And we look at how people, the commonalities of what these food systems were on this global scale. So it's an understanding of, you know, if there was agriculture, the different kind of farming techniques that people had come up with, the seed saving techniques. And we're looking at wild foods and ethnobotany and the immense knowledge of plants that people had on a global scale of what was growing and how to utilize them for basically everything for food, for medicine, for crafting and clothing and housing and whatnot. Um, But we also look at cooking techniques and food preservation techniques and where people are getting salts and fats and sugars. And it's really identified by where you are and the culture that was there, but you can plug in all those commonalities to understand an indigenous food system. So once we started figuring that out, we were able to, you know, discern modern indigenous foods pretty much anywhere. So we could do an indigenous dinner in Manhattan or anywhere. You could throw a dart at the map of North America and we could focus on indigenous foods there. It's going to be just as interesting as anywhere else, you know. So there's so much to learn regionally everywhere. And again, it's just that understanding that indigenous peoples had that blueprint of living sustainably, utilizing primarily the plants around them. You know, so you're def- they're definitely using animals as part of their food systems too. But plant knowledge was huge because it brought in so much, uh, so much health. And humans, we need so many different kinds of vitamins and minerals to survive on a daily basis. Um, and plants are providing an immense amount of that. Mm. I feel like the key difference in my mind in terms of what What is different about our current dominant ways of food production versus what I've learned is integral to the Native American cuisine or North American cuisine is that 
There's a lot more uh, foraging and wild game in Native American food as opposed to this food production system where it's more so based on demand versus the supply of what is readily available in any bioregion. Definitely. And, you know, as we started working, uh, creating businesses, food businesses around the styling of food, you know, what we did was challenge ourselves to try and use pre-contact, pre-colonial, pre-reservation food. So a lot of the work we were doing was re-identifying what those pantry items were, how people were processing them, and trying to use them regionally. So when we opened up our food truck in Minnesota called Tatanka Truck, which was our first big venture, um, you know, we were um, using only foods of this very much, this very region. So trying to use foods from primarily the Dakota people and the Ojibwe people um, around us here in Minnesota. And so cutting out colonial ingredients like dairy, wheat flour, cane sugar, not using beef, pork or chicken, and even, you know, some small weird pieces like we're obviously not using black pepper and things like that. And just really trying to make food taste like exactly where we where we are. And showcasing that it could be done because obviously people had done it for thousands of generations before. So we knew there would be plenty to play with. We just had to seek them out. So for us, it's just like building the system that we can do this over and over again across the nation and being able to bring back this knowledge and the stylings to create a modern sense of healthy indigenous foods pretty much everywhere, which is, you know, how we created our nonprofit and the the vision that we have moving forward. Mm. So given that people are going to continually make our decisions based on what we understand of what is edible, how are you going about encouraging people to support biodiversity through the foods that we eat? Yeah, and you know we're really focused on trying to bring this knowledge back to tribal communities to really change the status quo and fight against the suppression that's happened on indigenous communities across the board. So, you know, reflecting on like where I grew up on Pine Ridge, where it's been the poorest area of the United States since its inception, because it's basically, you know, it basically was a prison camp from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, it hasn't gotten that much better over time. But looking at where today there's still 70 percent absolute poverty. So 70 percent of the population living with less than six thousand dollars per household per year. Right. And an immense amount of uh, unemployment, you know, I think it was in the 90 percentile when I was growing up, and it's probably in the 80 percentile today. You know, so people think about the Great Depression of the United States, which almost hit 25 percent. And, you know, a lot of these tribal regions have never had it so good, actually, right? (laughs) So um, it's just trying to make a change and get people to think about what they can do and to secure this on whatever region they might be in and to bring a lot of economic prosperity because, you know, as we're creating demand for indigenous foods, we're going to be opening up a lot of opportunity for people from indigenous communities to be able to process and sell these foods um, into this network that we're creating. And we see a lot of opportunity um, for people to discern you know, what are, what are these foods coming from indigenous peoples and knowing that supporting those foods is, will be supporting something bigger, supporting culture and region when it comes down to it. Because indigenous peoples have did, a, have did a really good job of being land stewards of this land space for so long, you know, and we can really get back towards that as we um, retrain ourselves as indigenous communities to 
really take these steps necessary to um, tie it all together with our health and with our environment and be role models. And I feel like we're at this opportunity with the work we're trying to unleash to be able to do this on a mass scale and to be a global role model when it comes to regional and community-based foods and to pushing against this you know, capitalistic, imperialistic kind of mentality that we've been living under for so long. Mm. In a world that seems to gravitate towards simple answers of what what is best for everyone and what is best for our planet, and in a world where the most money and influence still lie in the hands of the people who initially gained that power through extraction and exploitation, how do you think we can safeguard and amplify our marginalized native wisdom of, of what it means to live and eat uh, with respect to our ecosystems? And how can we honor the diversity that exists in that so that we can understand what it means to thrive with our different bioregions across the nation and the world. Well, I think that, again, because uh, of tribal regions having um, sovereign nation status in many different areas and having access to their own land where they can really make a lot of rules themselves when it comes to landscape, we can utilize that for our benefit um, to really, again, showcase in a positive uh, food model and regenerative model of how we can rebuild soil health and community health, regional health and economic health just by focusing on that food system and making sure that all the community members are healthy and have access to these healthy foods. And if there's a lot of opportunity for people to grow with it and it can bring economic prosperity into those regions too. So I think being able to work with a couple of people um, and be able to show them how to do that and to be able to make it a consistent model where people can continuously grow with it um, we can start to see a lot of impact, you know. So when we developed our nonprofit natives or North American traditional indigenous food systems, it was all about creating a space to center on indigenous knowledge and education. Um, even though we're really, um, you know, food is our center, but we really believe in rebuilding the educational model. So, you know, um, just to talk about that really quickly, you know, what we're doing is we're opening up a space in Minneapolis here this next year called Indigenous Food Lab, which will be a live restaurant for people to come and try the foods. But it is, it's a it's a nonprofit restaurant and it's got an educational component where people can come and learn about indigenous food system knowledge. And our goal is to work with the tribal communities nearby us and help them to develop some kind of healthy food entity for the community, whether it's as small as a catering operation or as large as a restaurant, and utilizing ourselves as training, education, development, and support so they can always send people through us and we can give them the tools that they need to grow that out. And then we're hoping that each one of those satellite units in those tribal communities will be able to have the influence to start uh, more community gardens because we can give them the seeds um, available to them that could be particular from their region and give them uh, the education on how to maintain a, a community garden, what to do with the harvest when it comes in and having that infrastructure of a commercial kitchen to be able to process all that food in a healthy manner and hopefully entice more people to become food producers because we want to be able to support more indigenous food producers. And our final goal is to mimic that whole design, open up indigenous food labs in cities everywhere we possibly can and each one being a regional center point for development and support of other um, tribal indigenous communities, but also at that point being, again, role models for um, regions everywhere of how they can tackle um, their food systems on a regional level and a community level um, and bring a lot of health and prosperity to that community by really focusing on what people can develop there. Mm. 
And as you further your mission to help revitalize Native American foods, what do you think re-identifying North American cuisine can make possible for us going forward? Yeah, I think people can, if they start to understand indigenous foods, they're going to start to see that an immense amount of diversity that's out there, and we should be celebrating that diversity. So, you know, today we live um, in a very homogenous landscape, of course, where if you drive across the nation in any direction and stop at a restaurant, you're primarily going to see the exact same thing over and over again. You know, hamburgers and french fries and tater tots and... Caesar salad and whatever it might be, right? But if you're looking, you know, if we have our vision and are able to see it through and help open up indigenous restaurants all across the nation, and you were able to drive across and stop at them, people would see the immense amount of diversity that happens every every hundred miles or so, you know, because mm. not only are you in a different ecoregion and bioregion, but you're also in a different culture and language and religion and history. And there's, you know, so much to share and there's so much we can learn from that understanding that diversity on not only an eco and bio um, mentality, but also cultural mentality. So just having a deeper understanding of the landscape of where we are and the people who had lived there before and how they were able to survive for thousands of generations and not mess up the countryside, right? Mm. Um, and seeing the, the immense value of that on the global scale, that's where we can really start to appreciate um, so many different cultures and start to, again, celebrate diversity instead of trying to you know build walls against it and create borders against it. That sounds a lot more fun, you know, to be able to drive through <laughs> the country and be able to learn about different cultures and different bioregions through the restaurants that we dine at. So I hope that we get to realize this vision. And I'm curious, what are some ways that we as individuals can support the rediscovery of our North American cuisine? Well, um, you know, people are always welcome to uh, support our efforts as we're trying to grow out an educational model centered around food. But, you know, for us, what we did was we just tried to purchase from indigenous communities first, um, and indigenous food producers first, and then supported a lot of our local economy. So a lot of our local CSAs and growers that were growing a lot of food, out a lot of um, healthy foods, and a lot of them happened to be indigenous foods that we were being able to purchase from, too. So just really, you know, keeping that food dollar in your community is such an important step. But, you know, for us, uh, for understanding indigenous cultures, it's just getting people to be curious, you know, read some uh, cool books like that, uh, People's uh, Indigenous History of the United States, um, and uh, just start to really think about the landscape that you're on and how much we don't know about the land that we're on and how we, you know, what we could do with this knowledge if we move forward. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Well, I would say that Indigenous People's History of the United States, because um, I just reread it again and had a nice conversation with her. But her name is Roxanne Dunbar-Oritz, and I think everybody should read that book. Mm. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and motivated? Well, one profound thing I always leave people with is be the answer to your ancestors' prayers. Mm. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Um, taking time for myself, you know, so um, we have so much amazing work ahead of us and there's so much to do and it's so hard to juggle all of that. So I've been taking uh, an entire month off at the end of the year and just uh, disappearing to a small Mexican beach town um, and trying to unplug and reconnect. You know, you really have to stay connected despite going on. So you, it's really important to take time for yourself. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Uh, well, uh, all of the vision of our nonprofit, you know, we're so close to getting the first indigenous food lab opened and we're hoping to see 
uh, many of them over the uh, over the coming years, and we're hoping to you know, help create a system that is extremely impactful on a global scale. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world right now? I just see this um, really positive uh, movement happening with the indigenous uh, food sovereignty and all of this team of chefs and seed keepers and farmers and ethnobotanists and academics um, and just so many allies of this movement happening and moving forward. So I really feel like this is something that can really catch and happen on a global scale and to really start to change the course of the future of our environment and our connection to that. Well, Green Dreamer, if you'd like to stay updated on Sean's work, you can head to sioux-chef.com. That's S-I-O-U-X-chef.com. And you can follow their team on Instagram at Chef. Sean, it's been an incredible honor to be able to learn from you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I just, uh, you know, encourage people to really connect with the with the region around them, learn the history of the region around them, um, and just explore. You know, there's so much to learn. And uh, there's so much better we could be doing as uh, being a part of our environment instead of trying to be on top of it.